Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. You join me, Kerry and Richard this evening with Joe Healy. He's doing his PhD at Cardiff University, uh, researching nationalism, state crisis and social movements in Spain and France post 2008. He's also contributed to our Hiraith blog. Uh, he summed up our pods on socialism, nationalism and federalism. Hi, Joe. What's with that? What's with that? Okay. Um, hi, Rich. Hey, Matt. Hello, Kerry. Evening all. Uh, given that we're summing up our episodes on socialism, nationalism and federalism, we should probably start right at the beginning. So the reason we did these episodes was because of uh, Mark Drakeford's comments saying that socialism and nationalism were incompatible. What was everybody's thoughts when they first heard those comments? Rich? Well, it's very much what you'd expect from a Welsh Labour uh, First Minister, isn't it? Uh, that's the um, that's the stock answer which has been given for some time. And I think, as we've discussed previously in our um, pod about uh, independence, we've heard more about this idea of ambivalent unionism in within Welsh Labour, which is a massive distinction with Labour elsewhere in Britain. Um, and I think that you can detect maybe not so much in Mark Drakeford, but as we all remember, he's a bridge to a future generation of Welsh Labour leaders. I think you can detect a greater autonomy, whether you consider that nationalism or not, for Wales is definitely something that more and more Labour leaders and definitely more Labour members are finding a certainly coherent with their socialist outlook. Joe, what do you think? What was your reaction when you heard those comments? Um, well, initially, I didn't actually hear the comments. I just saw the reaction on Twitter. Immediately, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, he hasn't said that. Has he? Um, but, but, you know, you're right in the sense that he, it's obviously something that, that you hear often from Labour politicians is, is that they, they reject nationalism out of, sort of out of hand and say, well, it's, you know, that nationalism itself is integrally bad. Uh, you know, they would put it as integrally sort of... A, conservative right wing obviously as somebody who studies nationalism i just find that a bit baffling like the idea that that you could even think that because it, it's quite clear that there are some nationalist movements which are not right wing at all where they're, they're very very much the opposite way and actually what i do understand from you know the way that people not just the labor party but a lot of people on the left perceive of nationalism is it has to be rejected because it gets in the way of kind of class politics and I think that's a much, much stronger angle, actually, for somebody on a, you know, on a Labour ticket to take is that actually we, we can't get distracted by where certain cultural specificities or whatever, um, you know, we, ha we have to focus on, on economic issues and, and improving people's living standards, which I, I completely agree with. Um, I just think it's a bit the fact that it came out as nationalism is, in, is inherently right wing or you said something like it was inherently right wing creed which I just think is flatly wrong. You know, I, I just don't think that's true at all. But again, I, I agree with Richard in the sense that, like, it's a completely understandable thing for him to say. You know, he's not going to say, you know, let's all pander to nationalism one way or another because he's um, the leader of the Welsh Labour Party. So he has to straddle the middle ground between, sort of almost between British nationalism and Welsh nationalism. If you dig under the surface even slightly, you obviously see that, they, that the Labour Party plays into both of them. And, and that doesn't necessarily make it not nationalistic in fact it almost makes it doubly nationalistic but but it's actually it, it's it's their way of saying we're not nationalists uh we're actually we focus on, on something different it's just not their priority which i think is you know again it's fair enough for a labor politician to say that i just don't agree 
there's not a lot more to add from Rich and Joe's points, really, from my side. Like, there was no surprise from what he said. It was clear those views have been expressed by him before. I think he's made that his position on socialism and nationalism in Wales clear. But what Joe just said, it just doesn't appear that way. And although we're talking about Mark's comments, the guests we've had on the pod where we've explored this, you know, nobody agreed with him. And, you know, you're, you're our Labour firebrand in this pod, Matt. You know, what, what was your take on it? Uh, yeah, much like Joe, I was like, why have you done this? You know what this is going to do. Because it weirdly came at a time where he had started to garner lots of praise from people implied and you know in other parties because of how well he'd handled coronavirus but you noticed people sticking up for him uh, in on social media who would normally be the first ones to stick the boot in just because he was sort of standing up to Westminster but as soon as he said that on Nick Robertson's uh, podcast it was it was just like oh no why why have you done this the reaction was inevitable <laughs> was absolutely inevitable. And I actually really liked what Daryl said, which is it's just a bit, felt a bit like triangulation. It was almost in the way that Rodri had to spend so long of his term sort of trying to um, shove off that idea of being sort of crypto nats in Welsh Labour. He, he just did it as sort of, as a sort of buffer around himself. One thing I was going to ask you all, and I'll talk a little bit about now, is to what extent do you think he's sort of just ignoring the debate that's happening in Wales and in his own party about independence because we've seen again in an interview he did with Sky News saying that there is no huge growth or swelling support for independence whereas you know whether you like it or not there is clear evidence in poll after poll that shows there is support and now within Labour it says that 51% of Welsh Labour voters want independence so there's part of me that thinks that a lot of what he says is just trying to almost ignore the debate and push it to the side a little and try to focus on other things. The problem is you've seen in Scotland what happens when Labour tries to ignore the constitutional question. And if he doesn't engage with it, and I mean in a more in-depth way than reforming our union, the Welsh Gov document about it, if he doesn't engage with it in a more hands-on way, I think there's a real danger of them doing the same thing. But is... is growth in support for independence, the same thing as nationalism. I think it's probably not. I'm not a political scientist, but I think I don't think you can equate the two. Yeah, yeah. I was just about to say exactly the same thing. Now, su support for independence is not necessarily the same thing as nationalism. I, they're, they're absolutely connected, like at the hip. Like, you can't really separate them properly as kind of concepts. The idea of Welsh sovereignty and the idea of Welsh nationalism are absolutely combined. But you can't necessarily say that all nationalists want independence and you can't say that all people who want independence are necessarily nationalists. That same poll, which showed that Labour, most Labour voters in Wales would support independence, showed that only 68% of people who support Plaid would support independence. So you've, you've got like this strange dynamic whereby people who vote for the Welsh Nationalist Party only about two thirds of them actually support Welsh independence. And so it's clear that there's, there's something else there. It's not just the, the question of nationalism. It's the question of where does power lie? Where, what, what best serves the interests that you, that you want to achieve? Because I, I think a lot of people who support or are moving towards being indie curious now in Wales are doing so not because they necess necessarily believe in Welsh sovereignty or Welsh 
issues above British issues, but simply because they see that as a better vehicle for the kind of policies that they want to implement than, than the UK as a whole. Um, and I, I have to say that I completely sympathise with that. I moved to Wales less than, I'm going to say less than 10 years ago, about eight years ago, um, would never have considered the breakup of the UK at that time. And my opinion on that has completely changed just because of the, the political events that have happened since then and the fallout from the kind of the 2008 financial crisis as well. And then obviously you've got COVID on top of all of that. So I, I feel like for, for a lot of people, it isn't about one nation or another nation. It's actually quite a rational choice between where do we see Westminster going versus what can we do with the powers of the Senate and in what way are those powers restricted um, by, by the current settlement. And I think a lot of people are coming to the same conclusion on that. I think you have to recognise that these, these Labour voters who are, are now supporting independence, they're not suddenly becoming Welsh nationalists. You know, they're, they're actually making a pragmatic choice about where they, what they see as the best way of achieving you know, the political ideals that they believe in. One of the things which I really liked in your um, your blog, Joe, was the the line around nation as an imagined concept. But is that how you see people looking at it now? But um, even without the nationalism side of the nation of Wales, people are just looking at it as that political entity so that they can get the policies, the socialist policies or whatever, into their kind of localities, communities, neighbourhoods. Yeah, I definitely see that. I think there's that aspect of it, which I think a lot of people are now sympathising with, particularly since COVID. I think that's really shone a light on it. Seeing Mark Drakeford on the TV, you know, a lot of people didn't know who Mark Drakeford was. You know, they're now seeing him on the TV every day and seeing, you know, that he's, he's the guy in charge of the most important issue of the day suddenly gives people this realisation that there is a Welsh political culture to be had. Whereas I think a lot of people in Wales even people who are fairly interested in politics wouldn't necessarily have said that the independence was a viable alternative because they didn't see the Welsh Parliament as kind of strong enough or really kind of robust enough. There's not a, a real kind of debate in Wales around politics in the public imagination, I don't think, as much as there is, you know, certainly, you know, you turn the news on and you just see Westminster every single day, whereas that flipped since, since COVID. And I think for a lot of people, that it, what it is about is as much as anything else, bringing power nearer to where they actually live. That's part might not work for people in in certain more rural areas of Wales, but I think around Cardiff and the valleys, there would have been a lot of support for the idea that the people who make the decisions are just down the road instead of at the other end of the M4. And that offers this kind of new, I guess, a new kind of field of of where you can make decisions. And that's not to say that like local councils and you know, county councils are, are should be sidelined. It's just that I think the well, the imagined community side of it, I think, is that once once you see that that as a possibility that 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 politics could take place in that place for those people, however you you want to sort of perceive of it, the Senate is kind of potent enough in the imaginary sense. You know, in the idea of the the Senate as the decision making body, if if that suddenly produces an idea of well, actually, no, Wales can make important decisions for itself, then, of course, it's going to supplant the idea that Westminster has to do everything. You know, as soon as people realise that the Senate is already making important decisions, which I don't think was a, a really central part of people's political imagination beforehand, now I think people are, are much more sympathetic to the idea that 
the Senate can make every decision, you know. Um, I, I think that's that's something that that really is now in the in the imagination, if you like, the, the imagined community, I suppose, of Wales as as a political entity, not just as a kind of historical cultural entity, but as an actual decision-making body in and of itself. One of the interesting things here that we've we we've started off by looking at some of the ambiguities about the words nationalism and what that means but I think you also kind of have to think about what the ambiguities about the other word are socialism because you know we had two guests who talked about this and I, I think that it would be you'd be hard pushed to put Daryl and Sam's version of, of socialism together I also think it's quite interesting because I don't hear anybody in the public describing themselves as socialists, particularly in this era where we are very he heavily Americanized, where socialism is decried essentially as a, uh, the great evil in the American sense. And, and that influence has kind of, I think, depreciated the term, even despite Corbynism and the, you know, the Corbyn effect of 2017-ish, uh, in the public mind. And I think if you speak to people about what socialism is, I think a lot of people will have negative, they might even be Labour inclined people to vote, but these days they have a slightly negative impression of socialism. And I think that's quite an interesting comparison as well, because nationalism is a muddy thing to talk about in the public sphere, but quite frankly, so is socialism. Well, yeah, it's quite interesting actually, isn't it? Because I, do, yeah, I don't think you could get Daryl and Sam in the same room, and although they both describe themselves as socialist, I don't think their version of socialism is the same or that either of them would actually even agree that the other is socialist for one reason or another. Yeah, you're, com you're completely right. I, I, it's just, what is socialism? Is it this sort of weirdly Northern European social democratic movement that is about more cooperatives and a bit more redistribution and a bit of a higher tax rate? Or is it liberation from capitalism as sam would describe it it's a yeah like you say it's a very muddy water i think it's a cleaner term though especially on the left in the labor party it's much easier to describe yourself as socialist even though you're not i mean tony blair his last ever speech to labor party conference said we've got to remember our socialism and i don't think many people would describe mr blair as a socialist but if you're in the Labour Party and describe yourself as a nationalist, it's a much more, or it has been, a much more in, in immediate negativity to that term. I think we've always been more comfortable describing our certain elements of the party as soft nat, but that's more the sort of Carwin Jones school of, of things, really. But that, that has the blind spot of unionism, which, you know, people will very happily talk about their strong unionist credentials as, as though that's some kind of value-neutral oh. uh, proposition. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, uh, to me, unless you believe in a world with one government and no borders, you're a nationalist of some kind. It's just a question of scale. I can guarantee you there's not many people in the Labour Party, or at least very high up in the Labour Party, who talk about a borderless world with one government. So they are probably a nationalist of some colour. The Labour Party struggles with this question. Um, I like the phrase double nationalist. I don't know how well that will go down in my CLP meetings but I'll try it. How would you say that you re reacted then listening to what we tried we, what we envisaged as a, um, a sort of back-to-back -back compare and contrast exercise with uh, Daryl and Sam Joe what did, what were your initial um, reactions to the the two pods? Yeah I think it's exactly my, my initial reaction when I looked to compare them was exactly what you said is that they were working from different definitions of socialism to start with so you know so the idea that, like you said, that you can get them in the same room and they, that 
they would agree on what even what socialism is is difficult you wouldn't be able to do that to start with and then past that i they both had really good arguments for their own positions i didn't disagree with barely anything that either of them said uh which was which what i found interesting about because i was expecting to disagree with both of them quite broadly speaking um but actually no i didn't and and they there was a lot that they agreed on between themselves but i think there were a couple of things which i found really interesting about so for example daryl said that before considering a kind of nationalist alternative to the uk we should look at the voting system uh first you know and and try to come up with some kind of proportional representation and i know heaven david said in the in the federalism episode as well, he was talking about standard, uh, single transferable vote. You know, so something like that, I think, is a really sort of workable, good solution to, I, I guess, in theory, to the idea that there's there are certain nations who want to pull away from the UK and all the rest of it. However, on the flip side, then you had um, Sam was talking about, you know, he was talking about it from the point of view of imperialism and saying, well, actually, British, you know, imperialism is inherently right wing <laughs> so in, the, in the sort of Drakeford term, you know, that actually is inherently right wing. And then therefore anything that goes against that must inherently be socialist, you know, because if, if you're fighting against imperialism, then therefore you must be anti-imperialist, which is kind of in his eyes, which was coterminous with, with being a socialist project. So it was almost as if to say that Welsh nationalism, by the fact that it rejects British imperialism, is a socialist project in and of itself so it's almost like they were working from different points of view you know so like i said so daryl was sort of saying you know this is how we can achieve socialism at the uk level uh, whereas sam was saying because the uk is as it is therefore socialism cannot be achieved at the uk level um, and then you have to work from a different basis so it's like they they agreed on their kind of view of the world in in many senses they wouldn't meet in the middle and and I, th I found that interesting. It allowed me to be able to agree a great deal with both of them. It wasn't really like I disagree with anything that either of them said. It's just that I find myself kind of uniting those two think those two arguments in the middle myself. You know, on top of the kind of you know the issues that I that I mentioned in the in the article that I wrote. The the one line Joe you've put about um, is it socialism v Welsh nationalism? But in reality, it's socialism against Welsh independence. Really what we're talking about when we talk about kind of the Welsh national project, it's almost like a misnomer because it's not actually the national project that we're talking about. You know, the Welsh nation exists already. The Welsh nation is, has existed for however long it was that somebody came up with the idea of Wales um, and somebody drew a, a red dragon on a green and white flag and said this is wales now you know it, and and that's you know that, that's obviously a simplification but like if you if you take it that wales has existed as a nation for hundreds of years then you can't just say that the welsh independence movement is is the embodiment of welsh nationalism because it clearly isn't like i tried to say in the article that the, the labor party itself is not immune from nationalism it, it does nationalism in a different way sure but it's not it, it doesn't free itself from nationalism. So the idea that even somebody like Drakeford could talk about not being nationalistic is, is for the birds, I think. But also um, the, the fact that when you talk about Welsh independence, that doesn't necessarily have to come from people who, who are, you know, Welsh speakers or kind of really identify strongly with Wales as a nation. 
Um, we can recognise that Welsh nationalism and Welsh independence are connected to each other, but we also have to recognise that there are many people, I mean, I would include myself in this bracket, just for, for full disclosure, who don't see the UK as a viable kind of workable state going forward. And, and they're actually, Welsh independence is a kind of pragmatic solution to, to what I see as kind of structural issues with the United Kingdom. And so when I talk about the difference between Welsh nationalism and Welsh independence, what I mean is Welsh nationalism is this kind of like uh, this idea of Wales as, an, as a being almost a cultural entity, almost a kind of this idea that Wales is a people um, and can be then transformed into a political entity. My argument is that Welsh independence just takes that a step further. And we currently have a devolution settlement which already relies on Welsh independence as its kind of grounding basis. So all Welsh independence is, is taking that one step further as to say Wales should have the power to do whatever it wants to do and not have to worry about kind of sign off from Westminster. And really that's, you know, the argument, I think, for me anyways, it comes across as more, even though I involve it a lot and I say, you know, I do say this in the article as well, like Welsh nationalism and British nationalism actually are inseparable from the, the states, you know, the theoretical Welsh state will inherently be Welsh will be nationalistic and the British state is nationalistic too and it's really it's about involving the ideas of what those two nationalisms mean on their own terms and then also what the kind of power that you would like theoretical independent Wales to have versus the power that it has now and the kind of results of what that means for the people of Wales and of course I know that there are sort of big holes in that in terms of like what happens to the people in England that you leave behind and and it, at the end it's always going to come down to to some extent to nationalism because people who are going to choose one way or the other you know not necessarily they're all they will i mean uh heaven david said this as well that there will be people who are always going to be pro welsh independence no matter what that means there will be people who always 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 believe in it and there will be people on the opposite side who always believe in the union uh and and will not give that up because they are essentially british nationalists but I think a lot of us think differently and fall somewhere in the middle. And it's kind of about pulling out why we think that a certain, a certain structure, a certain institution doesn't work and why a different one would work instead. And I think really that's what Welsh independence is about, as opposed to Welsh nationalism just on its own terms. Yeah, I think that's, very, that's a very astute observation. And you just to just to kind of draw on what you were just saying, I think the interesting thing in the time that we are now to be having this discussion is the push and pull factors. There's always been a pull factor of among a certain uh, community in Wales, wherever you are on the political spectrum, to see some form of home rule or total independence or partial independence. But what makes this such a pertinent discussion to have now is the push factors in the relation to Scotland and Northern Ireland and their future, but also the particular brand of pretty hardcore nationalism that is in charge of Westminster. That alone is such a strong push factor that it is creating the comfortable relationship between a lot of people who would consider themselves left-leaning socialists for whom a national project has never been a priority and an independent Wales or an independent Scotland or, you know, a part of England, for example, to have greater autonomy to protect itself from 
the you know very strong nationalism and right nationalism that has utterly gripped Westminster right now. Well, yeah, certainly from people on the left, like I said, the people in the Labour Party who are now more in favour of independence are motivated by a, a range of different things, such as uh, realising that the chances of Labour winning in Westminster are greatly weakened. There's Brexit. It's it's the the sort of looking at Westminster and and questioning whether socialism is possible when that is what you're dealing with when Westminster is what you're dealing with. It's very interesting, and this is what Daryl. You know, we, we talked about this with Daryl whether Westminster is actually capable of delivering socialism, true socialism. And yes, it's true that the, Westminster did deliver the NHS, and it's delivered other things since then, <laughs> once. But it, you know, it's. <laughs> but subsequently to that it seems to have gone backwards. We've gone so far backwards from the, the Attlee government. So it's, it's, it's hard for people who live in Wales who constantly vote for socialist. I'm using that in a way that would annoy Sam Parry, but we'll say it, a socialist party, a social democratic party of the left who seem to always vote Labour, but always get a Tory government at Westminster is going to push you in that direction. And there's another thing that Hugh Williams said um, in an article he, he wrote for the Welsh Fabians probably about two years ago now, which is that he doesn't think that people who are young, younger generations see the unitary state as something that is normal. They've grown up with devolution. So devolution in itself existing is a push factor. It's, look, we can do this. We have our own parliament. We are capable of governing ourselves. Not only are we capable, we've got the building ready-made young people no longer see that unitary state as something to cling to, to. And they don't see, I don't think, separation as something to be scared of. Because whatever happens, you're never going to really be completely separated from England or Scotland because we share an island with them. So I think the younger generation especially is, is less scared of what comes next than the generations that have come before. Uh find that really interesting that you'd say that about the Welsh Parliament, the Welsh Parliament's existence, you know, the, the very existence of devolution pushing people towards independence. I think that's absolutely true. There's a really good argument about, in my own research, obviously, I've, I've been looking mainly at the Spanish case, but th there was a really kind of strong pushback after Spain uh, transition to democracy um, about if you devolved power to Catalonia and to the Basque country, eventually that would mean that they became independent because that they would uh you know they would sort of realize that they could make decisions for themselves they had their own cultural communities already um which then they would then transfer that to the political sphere and eventually so sort of people who grew up with that system would come to sort of support eventually just separating from from the state in general now i don't think that's something you know I, I hesitate to class myself as a young person but uh i turned 29 last week and i think i'm definitely no longer able to do it so i i feel i feel that pain as much as it yeah oh. you oh you are i mean I'm, I'm probably three years behind you but i i still don't feel like i'm wrong side of 25 now i can't claim that anymore uh, guys i'm going to be sick if you keep this going yeah just, just stop just let's talk move on alienating our audience as well sorry yeah yeah um so the young younger people in catalonia at least do lean towards independence and there's a good argument as to that that is because they grew up with the system uh, the devolved system and not just the devolved parliament and the idea that the nation if you like could make decisions for itself but also 
the fact that they've grown up with inside the systems of the of that parliament so it's not just looking at the parliament and saying we've got a government therefore we can make every single decision on our own it's also you've grown up with a devolved education system which is specifically welsh which is in some way is bound to be nationalistic in one way or another arguably more so in the catalan case for reasons i won't get into than in the welsh case but if you've grown up with that system you would obviously sort of almost naturally come to the conclusion that there is something valuable in that on, in, on its own terms. And so aside from younger people just being sort of generally more maybe open to new ideas and not as wedded to the kind of the old ideas of, of British nationalism and the kind of the way that British nationalism sort of relies on empire and, you know, the memory of the Second World War and all this stuff, which is now almost falling out of living memory. There's also the aspect of, like you say, the, the fact that the institutions are already there for young people. You know, 16, 17 year olds who come to vote in the Senate elections next year will have their entire lifetime is within the lifespan of the Senate. So they obviously know that there's something to be had there from the devolved settlement and they won't be scared to, to take that further. What do you think the major differences are between sort of the Welsh and Scottish independent movements and those you find in Spain and France? Firstly, in France, it's, it's kind of arguable that there isn't really uh, any, any potent nationalist movement. Um, Corsica is maybe one example, but I think even there, it's kind of, there are two nationalist parties. One of them wants independence and the other one doesn't. And this is what I mean about the ambiguity of nationalism. Like, you know, you can get a nationalist party that doesn't believe in independence. That's one thing in, in the French case is that I think that if there is a development to be had away from, uh, away from the French state, away from the idea of the French state as the kind of major um, decision-making institution, then it hasn't really happened in France yet. In the, in the Spanish case, there's always been some current of, in the Basque country and in Catalonia, at least a minority of people in those areas who never identified with the Spanish state whatsoever and have always, always wanted to, to create an independent state for, you know, the nations that they, that they have in those particular regions. So the main difference I would say, we're well, talking about kind of right now is that the British state is sort of turning more nationalistic, maybe the last five years or so. Brexit is obviously a massive catalyst in that, that, the British state seems to almost be turning the screw on the nationalism a little bit that makes people on the left particularly feel quite uncomfortable. Whereas that's never been the case in Spain and France. Nationalism in those places has always been ingrained. It's always been almost enforced. And it's been, you know, the, the, in Spain and France, the nation itself is written into this constitution. The, the Spanish constitution talks about the indissoluble unity of the Spanish nation. And that's why you saw such a violent reaction to the Catalan independence movement, because it's actually illegal for, for anyone to sort of even threaten the unity of the state. And the, government, the, the central government themselves will argue that they cannot break the constitution, which means that they actually can't even verify it, even if they wanted to, they wouldn't be able to verify an independence referendum. In, in Catalonia or in the Basque country. And I think the, the part of it that, that, that I would say is different about Britain is that that's very new. 
that that idea of the kind of the unity of the state the real kind of like enforced very english i would say version of british nationalism since probably 2016 mostly is uh, and i'm not saying that that brexit either way is like you know the, the choice of brexit i think conceptually you need to separate brexit from leaving the eu the kind of theoretical idea of leaving the eu versus the kind of political idea that is brexit which is essentially a british nationalist project you know that is being run from Westminster by a sort of a load of chances like Boris Johnson who really want to use it as a kind of a way to drum up support for their own their own cause and that's obviously what you saw in the election in 2019 with the get Brexit done stuff the turn towards independence I mean you've also seen in the last few weeks a turn from Scottish independence not just being 48 49 50 percent to going to 55 percent you know going well above that sort of halfway majority um and and i think that the reaction to brexit has been one real big factor in kind of really moving the british state to, to become more nationalistic to, to almost show its show its colors a little bit more and and in a way that in spain and france at least in my experience that's always been there and they've always recognized that that's kind of the way that the state operates it's always been nationalistic in that way and in the same way in a unitary way in a way that says we cannot have other nations they do not recognize catalonia and the basque country even though by all standards of analyzing what a nation is those places are in their own right nations the spanish state would never recognize them as nations because it would almost undermine itself whereas in the british case you've kind of got the exception that scotland and wales uh, and to a certain extent northern ireland i don't know really where you could describe it as a nation or whether it's kind of really there's one side that's kind of British and one kind of side that's Irish. It's not really a nation in and of itself. The fact that you're now seeing this move, like I say, particularly in England, towards the kind of nationalist project, which plays into certain things, plays into certain anti-immigrant ideas, kind of ideas of that, that do play on these kind of ideas of Britain is great and, and can, you know, can be great again kind of thing, almost like a revamp of the empire. And I think it's like I said, it's almost shown shown the colours of kind of a really kind of dirty side of British nationalism, which probably wasn't there ten years ago. You talk about the Blair years, for example. Blair had a particular idea of what he meant by Britain, uh, which was a very kind of four nations approach. The current Conservative Party does not have that. It doesn't even really try to to keep Scotland on board. It's just essentially saying you know, we, we have a certain set of values and we'll follow them. Uh, and that's, that's what they seem to believe in. So it, it's the movement towards those to, that, that has, I think, catalyzed the, the ideas of Welsh and Scottish independence, rather than, you know, that having always been historically that way. So you think you'd rather be a Scottish independence campaigner in Britain or a Catalonian independence campaigner in Spain? Absolutely, within the British context, as in like now, it, there's, there's, I don't think there's any realistic chance of Catalan independence. In Catalonia, they've never ever achieved a majority support for independence. No poll has ever shown majority support for independence in Catalonia. They've got up to sort of 45, 48 percent. It's never gone above 50. And I think that that's one thing that in Scotland they now have this kind of. They, they, they have that basis of saying, look, this is a majority support now. You can't deny that most people support this. And of course, the Catalan parliament tried to make that same argument because they had a majority in the parliament 
but they had a majority in the parliament with only 48% of the vote. So they had like sort of one or two seats majority in parliament that came from 48% of the vote. So it still wasn't even really a democratic majority when they called the independence referendum in 2017. So if, you know, if, if your main goal is Scottish independence, you could not have picked a better time really to, to go for independence uh, on its own terms because, you know, the British state is, is essentially pursuing a direction that directly polarises Westminster from Edinburgh. Uh, and, and the same can be said about Welsh independence or the Welsh independence movement as well. Whereas in Spain, they've just elected a coalition government at the beginning of this year, which includes Catalan nationalists. So in your article, you mentioned there's a couple of different national parties, nationalist parties in Catalonia, but there's some on the right, some on the left. I assume they form a coalition in order to govern? In the... uh, yeah. So at the moment they do, um, in the Catalan parliament, they had uh, a vote in 2015 that, where they achieved the majority, and they achieved the majority under the banner of Together for Yes. So Yes being pro-independence, right? So there was the small kind of far left party and then the kind of social democratic party and the center right party and they all kind of banded together and ran under this same ticket that said you know together for pro-independence they achieved this majority under that ticket and then they governed as a group with really they didn't do anything in terms of policy they just headed towards an independence referendum that was the main that's what that's what they wanted to do that's what they said they were going to do they said they were going to do it within 18 months it took them about two years October 2017 was the attempted referendum, which probably we've all seen the, you know, remember seeing the videos of old ladies getting chucked downstairs and stuff, trying to vote. Um, and of course, that was horrific. And, and a lot of the independence people thought that that was really going to kind of, in, in a structural kind of real politic way, that that was going to benefit them, getting that kind of like international scope of like, oh my God, this is dreadful. Uh, but it didn't. And, and so... What essentially happened instead was the Spanish, which at the time was a conservative Spanish government, fought, so they called an election for the Catalan Parliament. So they, they kind of overrode the Catalan Parliament's devolved settlement, um, put in sort of emergency measures, called an election, thinking if we can get the independence majority out, then the problem will be solved because they can't do anything anymore. They can't push towards independence if they haven't got a majority. But of course, the vote went exactly the same way as it had in the previous election and they just got voted back in again. The, the difference is that now the far right has massively come on the scene in Spain in the last couple of years and the Catalan nationalists are actually quite, well, certainly the left-leaning Catalan nationalists are actually quite scared that the far right might join a governing coalition in Madrid with the right-wing parties and they would actually seek to sort of dissolve them as parties, you know, because the far right in Spain wants to dissolve, uh, thinks that the Catalan Nationalist Party shouldn't even be allowed, you know, they shouldn't allow, be allowed nationalist parties. Um, and that's what I mean about the ingrained nature of the Spanish nation. You would never get that in Britain. You would never get somebody in Westminster saying Plaid Cymru should be banned, you know, um, but that's what the far right in Spain is saying. Um, <laughs> sounds sounds a little uh, bit like Dan Miller talking about uh, Labour for Independent Wales. Well, you know, I mean, best publicity <laughs> that group had ever, by the way. Best publicity <laughs> ever. Getting name checked in the Senate. <laughs> the other pod which we're looking at is the Federalism Pod, 
Um, and what we just touched around on Catalonia, Scotland, the future of Britain, obviously. Do you see that kind of model of federalism emerging in Britain any time soon? Like they, you know, could that happen? Well, the first thing I'd say is that I wouldn't classify Spain as a federal model. They certainly don't. Uh, they wouldn't say it's federal. So Podemos, the sort of left party in Spain, that, that's what they propose. They want a federal model for Spain. At the moment, they've got what is essentially sort of devolution on steroids, but they've, they've not quite got a federal model. But I think that there are, certain, there are certain things that you can take from it. So, for example, you've, of course, got the Catalan uh, region has its own um, own police force and its own kind of judiciary system. But then you've got in the Basque country, they actually have full kind of tax raising powers, which Catalonia has been after for a long time, which they don't have parity with each other. Right. So in both cases, you could, in theory, see a system where I think Britain could, in theory, move towards that kind of system. But I think it would take in a weird way, it would take the conservatives to come round to that to try to save the union. It would take the Tories themselves in Westminster to say, we actually want to devolve more power to Wales and to Scotland and to Northern Ireland in order to kind of protect the integrity of the union. And, and like I, I sort of said, I don't really think that that's their prerogative. I, don't, I really don't think that they, I might be wrong, but I don't really think, even though they call themselves a conservative and unionist party, I don't really see where that, that would take them. You know, I, I don't see them really coming out and batting for the idea that Scotland should remain part of the union and challenging the idea of independence with a new devolved settlement or a kind of federal settlement. I don't see it coming from the government. And in, in the meantime, you've kind of got a Labour Party, which seems to be, I mean, certainly in Scotland is just like all over the place on the issue. I don't even think they know where they stand on it. And then, of course, in Wales, we've got most of the Labour Party believes in the current devolved settlement and sort of refuses to really budge away from it. I know there are obviously exceptions like Colin Jones, but I think a lot of people in Labour have to move towards federalism in order to kind of almost to save the union. It, it, it sort of almost has to become broken up a little bit more in order to save itself because otherwise you're just going to get these these kind of issues will keep coming up as long as as long as people are losing faith in Westminster uh, and the problem is that the Conservatives are in Westminster and they don't seem to be really holding those kind of views they don't seem to want to devolve more power so I don't know I don't know whether I'd be hopeful for that kind of thing but it would be interesting to see if that's if that would be something that comes out of say the the Senate elections and the Scottish Parliament elections next year, if really strong kind of so-called nationalist support comes from them, you might get a, a sort of about turn from Westminster on that issue. But I'll, I'll be honest and say I don't see it happening. There are quite a lot of people now, uh, especially since Kia's election, who, are, you know, our, our position has been for a while, really, whether formally or informally, that we want a constitutional convention that would probably result in some sort of federalism. There's never any real detail on that because the actual conversation that you then need to have is a really difficult one, primarily because of England more than anything else, uh, and also because the buy-in that you need from people in Scotland. But realistically, they are so close now to independence that you, you'd struggle to get a lot of that 
back the, a lot of those people back voting for anything that you put on the table so there are there are voices in the labor party who want federalism or or confederalism or federal confederalism was some something different some change but again i don't know whether that is a legitimately held belief by a lot of people in the party or whether that is just something that sort of happened as a knee-jerk reaction to the prospect of scotland leaving and the growth in desire for independence in wales so it's, it's hard to know whether that is 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 a long-held belief I, legitimate is unfair i think a lot of people legitimately realize there is a there is a problem but whether that's a long-held belief or whether that's something that has sort of just appeared because it seems like it will solve the problem whereas realistically it won't you know federalism in of itself is is insufficient now i i personally think that carwin and we'll go into this a bit later carwin's model is closer to what we should be looking at rather than uh this abstract federalism and we'll go into it it's really hard to work out the details Without wanting to be too cynical, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Matt, in that what within the Labour Party, what the Labour Party is calling for is a constitutional convention. That's not an answer. That's a recognition that there's a problem. England is the problem. And what really struck with me from the first part of our episode on federalism was the one party that has advocated explicitly federalism for a century doesn't have an answer for England and that's the Liberal Party, and if after a century of advocating it, you still don't have an answer, I think you really need to think about what you're advocating. Um, uh, And the fact that the party, the Liberal Democrat Party in England, doesn't even talk about federalism is its own answer. That's different. If you were to imagine a world where England, Wales and Scotland were more separate entities, whether they were separate states or further apart, I think federalism within England, and this goes back to what heaven was talking about federalism within england is a perfectly reasonable idea and you can see actually a lot of the moves that the current westminster government is doing with regards to local government reform within england are kind of leaning that way to a certain degree but you can't mix models within the same state you can't have a multinational nationally devolved state and federalism the only way that could federalism could have worked on Britain, ignoring Northern Ireland for one uh, moment, um, like the British state has for 100 years, is if you'd followed the Kinnock model of devolution from the 1970s, which would be to pretend that Britain is not a multinational state, Britain is just an island, and we're going to cut it into territories that have more or less economic boundaries, and federalism could work on that basis. But the moment that you recognise that Wales and Scotland are distinct from England, federalism across the island under a single federal government cannot work. And I think that's the reason why Carwin Jones and, you know, to give them their credit, Conservative peer Lord Salisbury, many other people elsewhere have looked at the confederal model. If you want to keep the union together, you have to recognise that it is now a multinational state and use that as your your benchmark to yeah, your um, launch pad to go off and explore other ways of managing that state. Yeah, I think that's why the Lib Dems never talk about federalism outside of Wales and Scotland, because it just can't work, in my humble opinion. It's probably helpful to everyone at the moment if we just sort of define the difference between federalism and confederalism for the uninitiated. Um, to me, broadly speaking, it's about 
where the power, who the ultimate arbiter of the power is. So in a federal system, each constituent part feeds into a center. But in a confederal model, it works the other way. So power goes out from the center and each part is, is, is empowered. Uh, and I think that's an important thing to come up with now, which is, and feeds back into this, why I think realistically confederalism is the only way you'll do that because you need to uh, respect the sovereignty of each constituent part of the UK if it is to, to, to survive. This is one area where I think the Welsh government do really strongly agree. And although they may call for federalism, what they sound like they're calling for actually is confederalism. Um, they want to redesign the way the sovereignty works, that what each constituent nation is sovereign. Carwin said that, Mark said that. I think that's the only way you would get Scotland anywhere near a negotiating table would be a, we are sovereign, but we just have a very loose relationship, but we're still technically one. Some people, like you said, Rich, that wouldn't be enough for them. And Heaven said this again in his, in his pod. It wouldn't be enough. Some people would always want independence and complete separation. Sam said in his pod, maybe that's the fairest way to do it, to split apart as constituent nations and then come back together in a confederal model. Because like I said, you're next to England, you're next to Scotland, you're never going to really be able to ignore a neighbour that size. So you're going to have to work with each other. Um, but it's about respecting the sovereignty boundaries. And I think we're about to see with the internal market bill, a huge battle over who is sovereign in the UK. I think Jeremy Miles has tweeted a lot in the last few days about how he doesn't want to let the UK government do what it's about to do. Um, if they use primary legislation to take away our powers, we're going to have to do something, is what he said. So that'd be very interesting to see what happens and, and how, because as I've said in other pods, realistically, you have to respect the fact that, you have to respect it, you have to understand the fact that at the current situation, Westminster is sovereign and it can do what it wants. And as long as we exist in a space where Westminster is the ultimate arbiter of decisions, we have no power really, because it can always be taken away. Uh, and I, that's why I think confederalism if you're talking about models is realistically the only way it can work because you have to allow each nation to have its own sovereignty there is i suppose under the surface somewhere an identity that attaches itself to say yorkshire or like as a londoner of course i would say that that's my principal identity right so i i would never say i'm english well, for loads of reasons, but the the main one being that because because I say I'm from particularly South London, uh, and not not the North bit, but like I you wouldn't argue for the sovereignty of London, right? I mean, even I wouldn't, as somebody who you might describe as like a London nationalist, but right? I, I wouldn't argue for the the sovereignty of London. People argue for British sovereignty all the time, Welsh sovereignty, Scottish sovereignty, obviously in the independence movement. Um, the issue with, I think, as you say, with confederalism, I think it, it could, that's the one thing that really could work in, in the sense it could abate Scottish and Welsh independence, the, the movements themselves. You still have the issue of the, I think that England and Britain are very sort of like intimately tied together. I think that that is, you can overcome that by sort of saying, well, there's English sovereignty and, and sort of there, that's in Westminster and we can we can all sort of agree that, that's that's where the English sovereignty lies, but I'm not 100% convinced. It, you would have to move to that model very very quickly. I think is is my issue with it is that, like I said, I don't really see that coming from Westminster, even from the kind of the Labour Party 
um, what they, when they talk about federalism, they're probably really referring to confederalism. They really need to start talking about that at the UK level now. We talk about it in Wales and we, we obviously have heard it on, on your podcast as well. You know, you've spoken about these things and you're trying to create this kind of political culture in Wales about the ideas around how the UK could be sort of broken up, I suppose. That ne- you never hear that from Westminster. I, I don't think I've heard it even once. It's the same with the Conservatives. I don't think they'll come round to it. If they don't, I don't really see any way that the UK can kind of be saved from itself, particularly when you look down the barrel of things like climate change, things like the kind of coming recession. You, people are going to start panicking and saying, we're going to have to do something uh, to, to, to move things forward very quickly. Like I said, it's one of the main reasons I think why people have come round to Welsh independence and Scottish independence of late is that they're actually seeing that Westminster itself, seeing as the vast majority of the power resides there, is not doing the things that it really should be doing to confront the challenges that we are currently facing. And so if we're going to move to a confederal model, we really need to be doing that ASAP. And I just don't see the argument, I don't see the discussion happening uh, at the UK level. That's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that has been going around journalistic circles when they've been talking about the imminent Scottish elections is journalists have been asking other London-based commentators and politicians, what is the narrative for the union as is that could keep Scotland as part of it? And the problem with that question is that it ignores the fact that it's not a problem with narrative. It's actually the union itself does not work in its current form for Scotland or Wales or North, north of England, frankly, um, or west of England, in, indeed. And so what actually needs to happen, if you want to keep the union as is, you have to make it work better for the parts that aren't London. And this current UK government appears to have no interest in doing that whatsoever. If there isn't something that you can sell to Scotland about why they should be in the UK, well, you have to present an alternative way that the UK could work if you want to keep everybody under the same umbrella. And the fundamental core of the Welsh and Scots independence movement is that they want to share Britain as equals with England. And in order to do that, England needs to cede power over some of the territory. And we see this in the most uh, puny way you get English ministers who, in the UK government, who only have a brief for England, and yet they refuse to use the word minister for England. And that just indicates that the very core of it, it's not willing to see that power. So you have, you, you are essentially in a self-perpetuating cycle of two parts of the island that want parity, and one part that does not want parity. If we're a family of nations, the Welsh and Scottish view is that we're all siblings, but in the Westminster view, there's a head of the family. England is an issue in of itself for different reasons in terms of how you split it up if you're going to do this. But Westminster is the ultimate problem because why is it going to see this power? Why, when it is so powerful now, would it ever go, yeah, you can have more power? And it has happened. Obviously, devolution is part of that process. But with a government that is so focused on centralizing things, I can't see them ever wanting to devolve more power out, especially on a permanent basis that federalism or confederalism would, would represent. Well, exactly. Ask yourself, what is the electoral incentive for a government in Westminster to give more power out? 
because the bits that it would be giving power to don't vote for it anyway. And, and if you saw the, um, the recent YouGov poll that showed that a majority of voters in England would be, uh, conservative voters in England, would be quite happy to let Northern Ireland, Scotland, and almost half of them, Wales as well, let them go in order to have full control. And you just think, well, well, in that case, what conditions could possibly happen other than a future Labour administration in Westminster that does a deal with uh, SNP, Welsh Labour, Plaid Cymru, maybe to get enough to have a workable majority on the basis that it would do something like that. But it doesn't have a plan. It doesn't even have an offering right now. And whereas you've got here in Wales, Mark Drakeford as First Minister saying, the people of Wales have a right to vote for independence if they want it. The people of Scotland have a right to vote for independence. That is not the message that Keir Starmer nor Richard Leonard, for as long as he is Scottish Labour leader, are giving out either. So, you know, you don't, no party has an offering to make the, the UK work for Wales and Scotland. I think a Labour government in the UK, in you know, Westminster, would start to see the numbers of people supporting independence go down in Wales. And in Scotland, I think part of the reason that a lot of Welsh Labour voters who support independence see that as the way to go is because they never, they, they can't envisage a situation where they'll ever be able to win power in Westminster. In Scotland, I imagine a number of people who don't vote SNP but are in support of independence feel the same. I think a lot of people who vote SNP who are ex-Labour voters are ex-Labour voters because they no longer trust Labour. So I don't know necessarily think that would put them back into the non you know into the unionist category but you i i certainly think that there it's easier to envisage a situation where labor um give additional powers such as federalism or confederalism to wales or scotland than it is a conservative one i think you're going to end up running into a brick wall soon enough with the scottish independence um situation because what do you have happen do you have a catalonia style situation happen in scotland if the westminster government keeps refusing to allow independence referendums what do you do i think that labor being in power is still a it's, a it's a much easier path to it happening i think than ever happening under the uh, under the, the the tories so so joe just to um sort of think you know sort of wrap up your article in terms of the 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 things that you found interesting over the series of podcasts and um, maybe things that surprised you or maybe challenged you to think about things differently or more deeply. What would you say um, the little series has, has offered and what would you say would be the interesting next few questions to answer or will be answered by the upcoming devolved elections? That's a really good question. I, I think that the, um, the main point that I think that really came to me out from the fact that you'd done three different podcast episodes about sort of three on three different angles, if you like, I think what it, what it has done is kind of opened the conversation up into there's more than just two options, right? There's more than just kind of like what we have now and Welsh independence. In fact, if anything, you know, if you look at the kind of rallying up of like British nationalism, even in Wales around sort of abolish the assembly party, it could go the other way. Like it could even go, you know, not saying this will happen. I think it's really unlikely, but you know, it could possibly even, you can envisage a situation where uh, if 
Scotland were independent and Ireland were reunified, that people would actually decide we don't need Welsh devolution at all. Um, we just go back to sort of give everything back to Westminster because it, you know, it doesn't serve us anymore as a as a as a nation, I suppose. Um, th there's there's an argument to be had about the different things that will, are coming down the line, and I think that's it's key that we have this conversation now. And I think what I've taken away from it more than anything that that kind of surprised me actually was that people who were in the Lib Dems and Labour were much more amenable to the idea of potentially even, you know, I think almost everybody who, who spoke against independence on your, on your podcast episodes kind of actually eventually sort of said, well, if this doesn't work, if all the stuff I'm saying now doesn't work, then maybe, you know? Uh, so, so I think it wasn't necessarily that they were saying, look, I'm going to be a unionist forever. I think they actually, they, they were coming up with what they believed were workable alternatives, but actually saying, well, no, if this doesn't work, if, if we find out that this is a bad idea, then actually we could consider independence. And I think the argument of Daryl and, and of Heaven, I certainly remember, was essentially, look, we've got to try these things because they haven't been tried yet. Uh, and, you know, we've got to try a federal model. We've got to try changing the voting system. And they, in their eyes, that would, that would make, I mean, it certainly would make the UK more democratic. I can absolutely agree with them on that. But in their eyes, it would kind of also serve to abate the, the argument around independence. And I'm not convinced that that's the case. But what I would say is that it's important that those views are also out there because I think a lot of people on the independent side also don't understand that actually Labour or the Lib Dems or whoever are actually open to the idea of changing the current model, you know, that they actually are. There are, there is a variety of opinion. There is a, a complete, you know, across the whole broad spectrum of ideas of, of constitutional reform. There's all of that. And it actually shocked me the extent to which they were amenable to certain different ideas in certain different contexts. So um, for me, I felt like it clarified a lot for me about even my own position on it, because I was never, have never been 100% sold on probably any political idea. Um, let alone completely reforming the uh, British constitution or, or destroying Britain as a state, you know? So, um, so I, I think that it's, for me, it's offered a huge amount of clarity, I suppose, is, is, is the best word I can, I can give to it. And, and also just, like I say, it's just, it's the right time to have this conversation. It's that we, we are in a context where, as we've, as we've said already, it's the perfect time if you wanted to become independent from the UK it's almost like everything's pointing in that direction. And it, I think it's really important to kind of consider what comes next, whether or not Scotland becomes independent, whether or not the Welsh independence movement can, continues to grow, what workable solutions will come, particularly with the, the Senate elections next year. Who's proposing what, essentially, is, it would be my, my question on it. Because actually, if, if, you, if you just watched the kind of live debates before, I'm sure, before the election, there'll be obviously there'll be debates about the issue of independence and there'll be debates about the issue of possibly even federalism, but it won't come out in, I, I think in the detail that you've covered in the podcast. And I think that's really, what's been really useful is the fact that you've actually been able to see the complete variety of different possibilities. Uh, on that note, Joe, thank you so much for 
joining us this evening for our review. This has been a mammoth episode. Uh, thank you so much for all your thoughts, your article before. It's been really great to have you on. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you afterwards, what's the best way? Have you got a Twitter handle that people can reach? Yeah, it's at Joe Patrick Healy. Wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Uh, thank you also to Rich. Excuse me. And to Kerry. Thank you, gents. Uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, uh, please try and find us on Facebook at Here I Thought Cymru, on Medium at Here I Thought Cymru, where you can also read Joe's wonderful article, and on Twitter at Here I Blog. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. <laughs>